You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. And we have an amazing, amazing, amazing interview today, huh, Angie? Oh, yes. This is going to be very informative. Uh, probably one of the more topical and shocking and just really interesting discussions we've had in a long time. And our goal today is to learn from experts that have been out in the scene documenting and helping protect sharks from the practice of shark calling. Yeah, absolutely. We are joined with the filmmakers of Envoy Cole. So Andre and, and Lawrence, uh, welcome. Thank you. Thanks Happy to be much. here. Yeah. So, you know, so first thing we'd like to ask is just, you know, you both are, are very involved in this film. Um, can you kind of tell us, you know, what your role is in this film, what, what you each did, and then we'll kind of get into your backgrounds and, you know, what your interest in conservation is. But I guess, Andre, if we could go first. Yeah, sure. So I am, uh, I'm the producer and the director of this film. I became interested in this topic probably five years ago. I, I that, that's when I first found out that, that shark culling was a practice that, that happened in Australia. Uh, as a kid, you grow up and you hear about shark nets and, um, uh, you don't really know what they are. Anyway, five years ago, I found out what they were. I got, I guess, more and more and more vo- motivated to do something about it. And that culminated in about 18 months ago going, no, you know what? I've, I've had enough of this. I'm going to do, I'm going to do something about this and uh, starting to shoot a documentary, which is how we met Lawrence. Yeah. And uh, I'm Lawrence Klebeck. I'm a marine biologist with uh, Humane Society International and uh, Andre contacted me and asked me to be a part of his, uh, uh, this amazing documentary. My organization works on shark calling on a, on a legislative and political level, and, and we do what we can to um, do away with these, uh, these archaic practices. I kind of got interested in the issue when I moved to Australia about seven years ago to do a, to do a postgraduate degree in marine biology and uh, fell in love with the country and, and, and the marine wildlife here and uh, was just absolutely shocked the way that it's treated in some places by some state governments and, and wanted to do something about it. Yeah, because when you think of marine life, I mean, the first thing in diving and snorkeling, the first thing I think of is the Great Barrier Reef. Like that's mm-hmm. on everyone's bucket list, right? Yeah. And that's uh, 
it's a treasure of the Australian people. And so learning about the uh, shark calling for me was new. And I'm really glad that you reached out to us because it's just, uh, it's been, it's been really eye opening, and I am really excited for when your documentary comes out so I can, so I can keep educating myself and learn more. And yeah, I, we, I just have a million questions for you, but we'll narrow it down to, <laughs> I <laughs> promise. To, yeah. 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 I promise to, uh, to narrow it down. And so just so our listeners can get to know a little bit about your background, Andre, if you want to go first and maybe just tell us how you really started to get involved with ocean conservation. Cause I think that some people love animals or love the ocean, but it's like, Oh, I, I, I can't do that because I have this other job or this other thing. So if you want to help shed a little light on what, what got you motivated? Yeah, definitely. So I'm from uh, Brisbane or Brisbane, as people might pronounce it. If you're from the Midwest, yes, maybe. (laughs) Um, So uh, I'm I'm a city boy, but we used to go for school, uh, every school holidays, my family and I used to go to the the beach, basically, the Gold Coast or the Sunshine Coast uh, for holidays. And just pretty normal... um, normal beach activities, going for a swim, going for a bodyboard, going for a surf, things like that, and and developed a bit of an affinity for the ocean through that. Additional to that, um, there was a couple of times, uh, one of the places we went for holidays, there was an aquarium, there was one of those glass tunnels you can go through and sharks swim over the top of you. So um, as much as it might not be a place I'd visit today, uh, it definitely started a fascination or, or an affinity for these for these animals. The real game changer for me was when I did my scuba scuba ticket. Uh, I did my open water certificate. That's about uh, six or seven, maybe even eight years ago now. That was the big game changer for me. So being able to be under the water with these animals, interact with these animals, see these animals, that's, that's when things completely changed for me. So uh, I, I've always, in my career, I've always been a business guy. I've always spotted an, a problem in a market and I've fixed that with a problem or a service and, and grown a business out of that. And now what I've done is applied that exact same thinking to conservation. So I spotted a problem, a problem that really, really, uh, yeah, infuriated me, to be frank, uh, and, and trying to fix that. And I'm trying to fix that through, through the power of film uh, and through working with people like, like Lawrence who, who feature in our film. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And now, Lawrence, I think you probably have the dream job of most ocean animal animal loving children. So, how did your career journey start as a marine biologist? Because I know at one point in time I wanted to be yeah, one. I, yeah. I love dolphins and sea <laughs> yeah. turtles. So, yeah. give tell us the secret. How yes, how, yes, how, how do yes. you become a marine biologist? <laughs> what was your what was your start? Um, yeah, yeah, I guess I had a, a little bit of a unique one as far as marine biology goes. I grew up in Minnesota, actually, pretty m- almost as far as the, from the ocean as you can get. Um, and my love of the oh, ocean... Oh, really another good mid- Midwestern boy. I like <laughs> that's it. Right, I'm, that's I'm from right. Michigan, so yes, okay, okay cool. All right. Lots of lakes um, there, so you love the water. Yes, yes, that's right. But my real fascination and love with the ocean obviously just began from um, books and documentaries and things like that. And, Obviously, my parents really encouraged that and everything. And, uh, and like Andre said, um, as, as much as we, you know, as much as 
uh, our opinions have changed and, and there's certain practices that can be updated, zoos and aquariums did play a big part of, uh, of my development and my love for animals and, and the ocean and things like that. Um, I did my undergraduate uh, in California at the University of San Diego. Um, so yeah, then about seven years ago, I, I came out to Australia to do a, to a master's degree in tropical marine ecology up in Townsville, Queensland um, for, for our um, non-Australian listeners. Uh, that's up towards the north and right on the coast of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, after, after that degree, I started working on the reef on dive boats and other things like that and really got to see uh, a real dichotomy between the Great Barrier Reef, which is one of the world's most wonderful, fascinating, beautiful ecosystems, um, but also the threats to the reef a, 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 and the way that it's been decline, declining, whether that's coral bleaching or, uh, or, or this issue, exactly shark culling. Uh, and it really, it really hits you when, when you've seen something that you've been dreaming of seeing your entire life and, and, and you see how it's being treated. And, um, and yeah, it, it just some, I had to do something about it. And, and I, I looked for opportunities to, to, to enter this space and, uh, and was given that opportunity by, um, by Humane Society International. So I'm really proud to represent my organization, proud of the work that we do. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's yeah amazing. and so... Now you have to tell me, is uh, being a marine biologist, is it really all like rainbows and dolphins and <laughs> everything that I think it is? Uh, no, not all of the time. I mean, obviously it is such a blessing to do what I love and, and get paid for something that I'm passionate about that I would happily do for free. Um, but, you know, so, and, and yeah, I am living a dream, but no, it's not easy every day. Hard work, long hours and, 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 a lot of, I mean, I feel like a lot of scientists in a lot of different disciplines these days are feeling a lot of frustration about a lot of different governments. And so I'm definitely feeling that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Lawrence. Yes. You and I could do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> different pod, different day. Yeah. 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 So I guess, you know, just from the top. So can we just kind of describe, I mean, Angie and I obviously had, had seen the trailer and, and we'll definitely link it in the show notes, but what the film Envoy Call is all about. So maybe start with Andre and then go into Lawrence and, and, and what he thought the film was about. Absolutely. So the film is a science and research and fact-based look at what they call the shark control program in Queensland, which is a, which is a state in Australia. Uh, and then just below it is a state called New South Wales that run a very, very similar program called the Bather Protection or the Shark Meshing Program depending what terminology they're using. So uh, they're all pretty words for culling sharks. The New South Wales program was the first to start. It started in 1937. So that's 83 years and counting of culling sharks. Now, back when that started, you know, it, it, we didn't know very much about sharks, their behaviour, so on and so forth. It, it may have made some sort of sense. Although in our research, we've found, we've found comments from uh, the early 40s, as early as the early 40s of politicians saying, we fear this is just a false sense of security. Uh, but the programs essentially, like th there's been changes, but more or less they haven't changed in 83 years. They're, they're, there's very, very, very little. Uh, and the programs are there to catch and kill sharks to hopefully then reduce the likelihood of, of bites and fatalities happening. So... I probably won't go into too much about how wrong that is and, and, and how incorrect that is, but the film is, is a full in-depth look into this issue. Uh, we look at all the facts, 
the government were invited to be part of it. They declined, but we, we look at all their data that's available to us. We, we, we take on all sides in this debate and it's a very, very compelling, but also let's say damning uh, expose on, on these programs. Just really quick. Why would the, it just, it just hits me. Why would the government refuse to participate in discussing a program that they support and implement? They know it's a very, very difficult program to defend, especially if you're sitting in front of a documentary filmmaker, maybe asking you some difficult questions. What they like to do to defend this program in front of the media is they throw away one-liners that mean nothing. So they like to throw away a one-liner of, there's only been one fatality at a protected beach. They use the term protected beach. That means a beach where culling occurs. There's only one, been one fatality at a protected beach since this program commenced. Now, both, both uh, premiers in both states say this, so there's actually been two fatalities. But that actually leaves out so much other, uh, it, so many of the other facts, such as there's been over 50 bites at these beaches. So just because they didn't turn into fatalities... They try and play it up as the program's been some sort of success. Uh, we also have data to show, uh, and we'll get into this a little later, but we've got data to show that it can actually bring sharks closer to shore. So they don't want to sit there and answer these questions to me because mm -hmm. they know they're going to be much more in-depth questions than they might have to skirt around at a press conference. Right. That's my take. Yeah, yeah. And then I guess, Lawrence, you know, your role in the film, but... I know Angie's dying to ask kind of some of the statistics, right? Like what is really going on out there? Well, yeah, I think for our listeners that maybe are new to the podcast or new to just shark and shark conservation in general is, of course, it's a very emotional sharks drop, a lot of fear in people. Uh, for me, it started when I watched Jaws back in the 80s. I was really, really, really young when I watched it, but still, <laughs> uh, which probably made it worse. And I grew up on Lake Michigan, but luckily Lake Michigan's freshwater. So, uh, and I obviously have become a lot more educated and I'm very passionate about all animals, big, small in the ocean, whatever. And so I'm a numbers person. And I think that the listeners really need to understand that shark bites or interactions are really low to begin with. And then shark fatalities per year are extremely, extremely rare. Yeah, just to, just to touch on that first point, um, in, in 2018, you were five times more likely to be killed by lightning than a shark. Right, yes. And I often find myself, you know, in a rainstorm running from the, the grocery store into the car, which right. is probably way more dangerous than obviously going in the ocean, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Running through a parking lot in, in the rain is probably, <laughs> probably more dangerous, definitely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to, just to talk about some numbers, uh, we, we all, we've all heard the numbers thrown out uh, of how, how many sharks are lost to our oceans each and every year, anywhere from... 60 to 100 million, depending on who you're talking to. And those numbers are, um, I mean, the human mind is completely incapable of really understanding those kinds of numbers. Um, and, the, and so anything I, and anything I say to you about the wildlife costs in these programs is going gonna, is gonna to seem like it's insignificant in comparison to that. But when we turn that around and, and think about um, the amount of endangered and threatened species um, that are taken in these programs, when we think about um, the, the fragile, fragile ecosystems that are being robbed of their iconic and essential um, uh, organisms that, that, that form 
it's, like I said, essential cogs in, in the way these ecosystems uh, function. That's when we really get to start to feel of um, the fact that these, these are local issues. So even, even these numbers, even though they're not in the millions, they're still incredibly significant. Um, in New South Wales, uh, in the shark meshing program, since 2012, they kill an average of 190 animals a year. Um, last year, they caught 395, uh, including 200 sharks. And 88% of these 395 animals caught last year were threatened or protected species in Australia. Um, so we're not talking about just, uh, you know, um, a, a couple stingrays here and there, but um, sea turtles, dolphins, whales, um, um, critically endangered scalloped hammerheads, th things like that, gray nurse sharks, which are critically endangered on the east coast of Australia. Mm -hmm. um, in Queensland, the numbers are even higher. Um, since 2001, they've killed 550 animals per year. Last year, 522 were caught. And when sharks are caught on drumlines in Queensland, and the shark, even if the shark is alive, say, say it's a large, robust tiger shark that can last a few days on a drumline, well, too bad. It still gets shot in the head and its carcass is dragged out, dragged out to sea. Um, so yeah, these culling, these culling programs do massive damage. And, and like what I touched on, especially as far as ecosystem function goes, the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, the, the, the management agency that, that oversees the health of the Great Barrier Reef, uh, did a progress report this year. And on, on their list of the top threats to the reef, obviously coral bleaching and climate change is number one. But just, just barely further down the list is removal of apex predators. Um, so I know your listeners are, are a very animal-loving crowd, but, but imagine taking lions out of the savannah and the way that all the other organisms will interact and that, and that balance gets thrown dangerously, dangerously out of control. And healthy ecosystems like the Great Prairie Reef need healthy shark populations, and this program is depriving it of that in a time where it really needs all the help that it can get. Yeah. On that too, we, we look at a we look at a bigger um, uh, we, we look at the whole the whole program and and it's some crazy numbers when you look at since its inception. So Queensland only started in 1962, not at the same time as as New South Wales did, and it's 13,000 tiger sharks in that time. It's nearly a thousand great whites. Obviously, great whites are in in uh, a bad shape population wise. So to have taken a thousand out of the, the the gene pool and breeding and all that sort of thing that the untold flow on effect of that is is really bad yeah uh, yeah and yeah and another thing to mention is that these programs um specifically target the larger animals and for those of us that understand a little bit about fish or shark biology is those those larger animals um they don't they don't hit menopause or anything at any age they become more and more productive and, and, and more fecund. So the larger animals you take out of the, uh, out of the population, the, the bigger impact you're going to have on those sharks being able to rebuild that population. Yeah, yeah, they have a long, it takes them a while to grow and to become sexually mature. It's not, it's not like you're a goldfish you get at, you know, at a local fair and then there's grows and there's more of them. It, they <laughs> yeah. grow really slowly. It takes them a while to reach adulthood and a while to become breeding shark. So that, yeah. That's one of the bad things about this program too, is that there is no minimum size 
so um, you know, with 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 recreational fishing, for example, it's, uh, it's under a certain size. You throw it back for for, for that reason. Um, that, that that's not the case. We've got we've got images of um, one meter long, year uh, basically year old tiger sharks uh, that that they kill. We've got great whites that are you know. Uh, definitely, definitely haven't reached sex- sexual maturity. So we're talking uh, like a, a quite a small shark, one one to two meter great white. They mm. kill them. Mm. Yeah, and and for some of our listeners out there, can you maybe Andre, if you want to talk a little bit about the different types of calling, uh, help educate us on the meshing versus the netting versus the drum lines. Yeah, so so meshing and netting are the same thing. That's just two two, two different uh, pieces of terminology from two different states. Essentially, they I mean, are meshing a, meshing does sound a little bit more like fun and nice. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah. yeah. Oh. And, and and shark net. So that that's you're right. That's a little bit mm-hmm. deceiving, if that's the right word. But sure. so is shark net. Shark net makes the public think it's a net that goes from the surface to to the seafloor, and it's a bit of a barrier, and it stops sharks coming into shore. It's not. Right. It's a fishing net, full stop. They're both just gill nets, yeah. same as you would use okay. in, in commercial fishing. That's all they are. It's, it sounds fancy. They're set at beaches, so people think, you know, maybe they're a bit of a barrier. They're not. In New South Wales, they're set on the bottom and they go to halfway up in the water column. So sharks can swim around and above. They're only 150 meters long in New South Wales. Uh, uh, oh my a, gosh! A, that makes no yeah. sense. Does it make any yeah. sense? Yeah. No sense. Queensland makes equally no sense. They are 183 meters long. They are set on the surface, but they only hang six meters down. Again, in waters 12 meters deep. So you're talking a giant coastline. To use the Gold Coast as an example, so from the southern to the northern tip of the Gold Coast uh, is approximately 30 kilometers of coastline. Mm-hmm. They have 11 nets in that space. So 11 times 183, don't have a calculator in front of me. Let's call it uh, two kilometers. You might want to do some miles uh, conversions here yeah, for your yeah, audience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in 30 kilometers, uh, there is two kilometers of nets and they don't even go to the bottom in that two kilometers. So, so the whole concept is just absurd. If, if anyone thinks it's actually keeping sharks away from them, it's just fundamentally absurd. Uh, they're a fishing net, full stop, end of story. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in terms of a drum line, a drum line is a fancy name for a giant floating fishing hook. So they have a big bright orange buoy so tourists can see them and feel safe. Uh, and below that is an industrial chain with a very, very, very big fishing hook that does a lot of damage when when a shark bites through it. Sometimes it goes, it's not always just through the through the mouth. Uh, it'll sometimes it can come out through the top of the head, and yeah, it's it's quite graphic stuff. Uh, well, and they, and they, they bait them though, right? They sorry, yeah, they're a baited hook. Absolutely, absolutely, they're a baited hook. So um, th- there's a strong argument in our film, uh, backed by data, that, that that's bringing sharks closer to shore. So right. the, the whole concept is the whole concept is fundamentally flawed on on so many levels. And then not only what happens a lot of the time with the drum lines is that they will catch a smaller shark, a reef shark or or a tawny nurse shark or something like that. And then they become predated on by a larger animal, by a bull or by a tiger or by a white. So what you're actually doing is catching smaller harmless sharks and then they are then attracting larger, more, more dangerous sharks to humans um, closer to shore. It's, yeah, we, we could spend the whole episode talking about how absurd it is, but that, that's the short version of, of, of the actual methods that go into the program. I'm not sure if, Lawrence, you've got anything to, to add to that. 
Yeah, I just wanted to throw in one number about the shark nets. Um, uh, one of the another Australian state was thinking about using some of these programs back in 2012. So I asked a couple of the experts in the states that are using them um, how they were going, and um, and one of those one of those studies found that 40 percent of all the sharks caught in the nets were on the beach side, on the shore <laughs> side. Okay. So 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 nearly half of these sharks are caught where the people are swimming anyway, yeah. and yeah, just. Um, going off what Andre said about yeah anything caught in the nets if it, it, it become even the nets become uh, baited as, as they as they attract these animals in and and it, it's creating oppor- feeding opportunities for intelligent animals uh, as, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware the sharks have been around for 350 million years and it's it's no coincidence that they are incredible incredible predators that are perfectly tuned to what they're supposed to do and and finding feeding opportunities is one of the best things a shark does uh, and so if a shark is continuously hanging around baited drum lines uh, that does not bode well for people that think that they're uh, a device that provides any sort of safety a really iconic surf break on the gold coast snapper rocks it's surfers globally will know it it has drum lines just off the back of a surf break like literally there's surfers just sitting there on their boards and 200 meters away is a chum slick being created by these baited drum lines. It's yeah. Makes no sense. Yeah. No, (laughs) especially growing up on the the coast of California and just, so I guess like, you know, I know the, the film is focused on Australia, but are these techniques being used worldwide? And, you know, or, or what are some of the other, I, you know, I know briefly I, I saw in the film trailer, Hawaii, you know, doing shark calling. So what's it look like globally? I'll speak quickly. Yeah, the film goes to Hawaii. So I'll speak quickly about Hawaii. uh, And then then maybe Lawrence can add from there. But uh, we go to Hawaii, we talk to Ocean Ramsey, we talk to Juan Oliphant. And they tell us about the failed cull that they had in Hawaii there. So so they attempted these methods, They, they went out there and they killed a bunch of sharks in the hope that uh, it, you know, it might make beaches safer. And they studied it and they realised it didn't. They realised it was not a good idea and they pulled the pin. Like the, the, the section in the film that addresses that is actually quite short because there's not that much to say. Tried it, realised it was dumb, stopped. Like it, 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 the numbers did not back the, the outcome they were looking for. So they pulled the pin. They, they realized it was, it was stupid. In, in, and in some senses, they made it worse because when you take out uh, large tiger sharks, for example, that, that you know, control an area, um, you let more juveniles in and, and, and juveniles are still learning uh, what, what to, what's food and what's not. So you're actually making it more dangerous as well in a sense. Hmm. Yeah, Lawrence, do you have anything to add? Yeah. Yeah, and, and just talking a bit more globally, there, there has been in, in probably the, the last two decades a couple of the calling programs around the world, but, but honestly not many. Uh, there's Réunion, the island in the Indian Ocean, that operates a, a calling program until, up until recently when they've uh, began using smart drum lines instead, which I think we'll touch on later. Mm-hmm. Um, Brazil, uh, as Angie pointed out earlier, um, runs a, um, what used to be a control program uh, I'm actually not sure what it is currently, as well as South Africa is the other is the other big one, um, the the coast of the KwaZulu Natal, mm. um, that runs uh, shark nets as well as drumlines. Um, but I feel like in South Africa it's in it's in a similar space as Australia, where 
it's unpopular and there's there's been a lot of work being done to to end it just just as it is in australia well yes lawrence as you were mentioning i uh preparing for this interview i started diving like deep diving because this this was just uh it hit, it hit a lot of emotions in me uh, and but of course as a scientist i always try to reel that back in sorry pardon the pun and uh and and really get into some numbers and as you mentioned there's there is some data out there but there's still a lot that we don't know i mean i think the biggest data point is that for instance in 2018 there's only five shark fatalities worldwide right so that's a statistic that's i mean that's very 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 low and i think the other thing to consider too is there's human population is growing and more people are going to the beaches Maybe not right now because of the stay-at-home orders, but there's more people and there's more interactions with them to be get like we are coming into their space. And so when I was doing some uh, review of the scientific literature, I found um, a 2014 study in animal conservation about the shark mitigation program uh, in Brazil, and it was off the coast of Hasafe, Brazil. And they went ahead and did the smart drum lines. And that's drum lines like you mentioned. So not, I don't think really the concept changes. There's they're big, humongous hooks baited with some really tantalizing fish, uh, large fish species. But the difference is, is that they have uh, their smarts. So they have AI, artificial intelligence, or batteries, solar power batteries to basically alert uh, people that are monitoring them when the system's triggered. And they found that they had pretty good luck with it so far. I mean, the program's still new and it is expensive. Uh, and so I didn't know if you could make any comment about the smart drum lines or if that is something that uh, your film touches on. Um, yeah, so smart drum lines are being used right now in, um, uh, in, a, in a trial capacity in New South Wales. Um, and like you said, yeah, they're, they're, they're essentially a traditional drum line with a GPS transceiver that, that, um, that sends up a message once it's, once it's triggered so a contractor can race out. And the idea is, is that an animal caught on the, on the drum line can be tended to within 30 minutes. This is because they're meant to be non-lethal. So if it's, if it's any species of shark or ray or turtle or any other animal, um, it's released. If it's one of a, a three target species of shark in New South Wales, the target species are uh, great white, tiger, and bull shark. If it's one of the three target species, it's tagged and relocated. Um, so it is meant to be non-lethal. Unfortunately, it is still a, a big, big hook, baited hook in the water near, near swimming. So, that, so there's obviously uh, massive concerns about that. There's massive concerns about what we call post-release mortality. When a smaller animal, when a smaller shark is caught on a smart drum line, even though it's released, that's a very, that's a very stressful, very exhausting experience, for, as you can imagine, for an animal, uh, especially a shark, um, so that some of these animals don't, release, don't survive post-release. Now, some of the more robust species, great whites and tigers, are fine being hooked on the line for a long period of time, uh, but smaller hammerhead sharks and things like that are definitely not. Um, so these smart drum lines will take a toll with those species. Well, and I guess it also begs a question for me is you relocate them. Uh, I've done that with squirrels, I guess, to feel better about myself or whatever it is. But 
how do we know they're not just coming right back? I mean, some of the, what I was reading, it's, they're not relocated like really far away. Am I correct? Or any thoughts on that? Yeah, in, in New South Wales, um, the, the rule is, is they take them uh, about a one to five kilometers out to sea and then release them. I'm, I'm assuming it's probably one because that's, that's the lower end of the scale. Uh, but from the studies that they've done um, is that most of these animals head straight out to, out to sea. Okay, they, uh, and, they're smart. They had a bad experience. They're like, I'm yeah, out of here. The, 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 av- the, I think the average time for one of those tagged animals to return to uh, a listening station where it can be recorded again is about 70 to 80 days. Um, so they do stay away for, for, for quite some time. And so that's why these smart drumlines are very nuanced for my organization. As an animal welfare and environmental conservation organization, we will never promote the use of hooking animals, uh, dragging them around the ocean, just because we don't want them where they are, where they're naturally occurring. However, politically, we understand the viewpoint that even though some of these shark control equipments are false senses of security, that makes people comfortable. And that's what wins elections. That's what politicians want to hear. So if we were, if we, if we were to choose, we would prefer smart drum lines to the nets or traditional drum lines. But obviously we still have those reservations. Whenever we're approaching programs such as Queensland, such as New South Wales, we do suggest a trial of smart drum lines as long as it's replacing one of those other, um, or one of those other uh, methods, but that's just as a pragmatic step uh, in progress. Um, it's not something we're super comfortable about, but we realize that it's the it's the lesser of two evils at this point. Yeah. It might be a good time to to kind of bring up the recent story because you know I kind of want to lead into what other species are affected by these nets and drum lines. And, and so before we started recording, you were, you were just telling us this week and you were involved with this story about a, it was a humpback whale was caught up. A calf was caught up in one of these shark nets. Yeah. So we were getting some final shots for our documentary. So, so it, it is, it is almost finished. There's just a little bit of uh, maybe artistic perfection going on where there's a couple of shots I wasn't totally happy with. So um, I'd sent, I'd sent our drone operator down, down to the Gold Coast to get a couple of final shots just to refine the sort of opening few minutes of our film. And as he was doing a flyover of the nets, he saw a whale caught in one, immediately called it in, uh, let me know. I raced down to the Gold Coast as well. It's about an hour from, from our, our office. Uh, I raced down to the Gold Coast as well to because I knew there'd be a bit of a media frenzy and 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 we'd need to distribute footage to the media that we'd gotten of this whale and so on and so forth. So I knew we'd need a, need a set of hands. I went down there, got down there about an hour after it'd been called in. No rescue team yet. We waited a bit longer, waited a bit longer, made some follow-up calls, no rescue team yet. It got to about two and a half hours since the call uh, of the whale being entangled, uh, of us seeing it, uh, sorry, and... Uh, Still no rescue team. So I, I, we could see on the drone that it was starting to get fatigued. So it was coming to the surface. Its breathing was becoming more laboured. It was, it was struggling a lot more than it had been when we'd first seen it. I started to get, um, 
I started to get quite uncomfortable with with the prospects of this whale. So I ran I ran to hire a couple of uh, stand up paddle boards, and uh, myself and someone else were, were um, going to paddle out there and, and just do it ourselves, basically. Uh, and as we were doing that, uh, I was on my way out. He was just putting his board in the water. Uh, the, the the guy that was going to help me. And uh, and then this 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 good Samaritan turned up in what we call a tinny. I'm not sure what you call what you call those boats in the states, but they're a small like aluminium 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 hull yes. uh, little, little boat with a yeah, motor on the back. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I don't know what they're called. Um, anyway, he turns up, uh, literally sees what's going on, pulls over, anchors his anchors his boat to the shark net uh, to to the net, and uh, dives in gets his knife, releases the whale, gone. Still no rescue team in sight. This then started a media frenzy. Like, where were the rescue teams? Who is this mystery guy? Um, He got fined for breaking a 20-meter exclusion zone around this equipment. So the 20-meter exclusion zone is a whole other story um, uh, that I could talk about uh, with frustration. But uh, so he got fined. It became this massive story in Australia. It was three, four days ago at the Mm. time we're recording now um it it uh, it's still going it's still in the media yeah. uh, under the, the the pressure from the media and the pressure from the public now they've withdrawn the fines luckily mm. uh because I, I feel like he did the right thing um and yeah it, it it just shows i guess it's a good lead in to maybe talk about all the unintended side effects of these nets both drum lines and nets but specifically nets because whale entanglements are not uncommon mm. there was six last year uh, unbelievably, the government released a press release after this incident saying, don't go in, don't, don't save, don't do it, leave it to the experts. Um, and we run a really good program and there was only six whale, whale entanglements last year, which is the weirdest brag I've ever heard. I yeah. think that's... <laughs> only six, yeah. Only six. Good yeah. job. Good job, guys. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but there's there's... There's dolphins that, that die in these nets. There's turtles that die in these nets. There's rays that die in these nets. Like th- they're super, super indiscriminate killers. It's, it's madness. It's really madness that, I mean, yeah, I had this idea of these nets weighted and, you know, protect the beach. Nothing gets through and they're just kill nets just floating there. Catching just whatever. Just just catching whatever. On a whale migration path too. Yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah. yeah. Or for anybody that's watched uh, Finding Nemo at the uh, the sea turtles, you know that whatever current that is, the Great Australian Current or whatever. Yeah, yeah. 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 So Lawrence, I guess what how does from from your learned opinion, you know, with your education, how does this affect the local ecosystem? I mean, I know for us, you know, and and we've covered it the last couple of years. Anytime we talk, you know, in the ocean, Angie always go to the Great Barrier Reef. We always just mention it. And, I was very lucky to, to dive it a decade ago. What's the effect on, on the ecosystem off the coast of Australia there? Well, I, and I'm sure, you know, uh, ecologists everywhere would agree with me that these trophic cascades, as we call them, when, when we remove a rung of the, fe- the, 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 the food chain, it's incredibly difficult to predict. Um, all we know for sure is that it's, ba- it's, that it's bad, um, uh, it, and it can lead to massive imbalances. Uh, we look at the classic examples like um, 
when the when the sea otters were fished out of the kelp forests what happened to that led to urchin barrens and things like that so specifically on the great barrier reef with the loss of apex predators like these large sharks i mean then we'll see more these of the the meso predators the the large fishes and things which will then in turn lead to less of the smaller fishes and things uh, again it's it's really difficult to uh, map out the the exact um, impact that these will have but but to say that the tiger shark is um, undisputed the the top predator of the Great Barrier Reef and and most um, I mean every tropical marine ecosystem and and that's the shark that is more than any other taken taken out uh, out of in this program um, I think it's about two two to three hundred a year there was there's 365 sharks killed in the program last year. And now Angie said you liked numbers, so I'm going to do some quick math for you. That's one a day. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, and that amount of, of, of large predators taken out of any ecosystem is going to have a, a, a massive impact. Oh, yeah. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and alongside that, that and alongside that shark fishing still still commercial fishing still happens in the great barrier reef as well um so this is kind of this this ocean conservation issue definitely extends beyond shark culling about the way that we treat our ocean habitat and specifically our unesco listed world heritage sites like the great barrier reef and that it's just incredible that these things are still happening there yeah and with all this data lawrence uh that quite obvious and and as far as ecosystems go with sharks being important for healthy oceans healthy barrier reefs why is it that they're still around and what is what is the politics behind it because i don't as far as i can tell and maybe you can correct me if i'm wrong but there's not a lot of numbers supporting the drum lines and the fishnets so yeah, like what's going yeah. on here? Like Andre was saying earlier, the, the, the meshing program began in the 1937 and the, the, the drum lines in 1962. And these are obviously very 1930s and 1960s attitude that are still pretty prevalent um, in the upper echelons of politics, as well as the media, uh, not only in Australia, but around the world. Um, and I feel like the reason why these are still in place is, is number one, denial. Uh, the first thing is um, people's certain, certain sections of our society still feel like the ocean is an inexhaustible resource that's for, for us to exploit. Um, and they don't, they don't see it as any other way. Um, if we're out swimming where the sharks live, then they better stay out of our way um, because this is, this is, this is, it's a very anthropocentric view to think that this is our world and we can control everything around it and in it. And if we don't like it or if it hurts us, that we need to kill it. Uh, and I think that mentality is still so prevalent. And secondly, the, even, even when, as Andre pointed out, even, even when the majority of, of a populace or a majority of, a, of an electorate disagrees with, with these measures, they're still so much fear in the heart of a politician if they were the one to take out and remove the shark nets like everyone wants the next person to be inevitably interacted with a shark that blame is going to fall squarely on their shoulders Mm -hmm. and 
unfortunately, politics is now more about getting reelected than doing the right thing. And, yeah. and I feel like that's, a, that's the mentality governments have these days. Yeah. And so, I mean, what can we do to help change their minds? Just, just really, just really get as much public that we need an overwhelming amount of public support. We're learning through this, through this exercise that a simple majority just isn't enough. It has to, it has to be from all corners. It has to be businesses. It has to be tourism. It has to be families. It has to be, you know, um, from all corners of our society, we've, we've got to recognize these things. We've got to, I mean, this, this, and obviously this goes far beyond simple shark calling. This goes for so many things that we're facing right now that, that we all really need to band together and, and show what we can achieve as a, as, a, as a human race and as a human civilized society. I think a lesson can be learned from the Western Australian cull. So Western Australia is another state in Australia. They had a trial of a cull in 2014. Uh, they quickly abandoned it because there was international outrage. So Queensland and New South Wales programs have been around for a long time. They've flown under the radar for a long time. That's something we're looking to change with this film. New South, uh, Western Australia, sorry, is it, it was new and it got on the global radar and there was outrage. Like, like famous people were condemning it. There was protests. There was paddle outs. There was all this uproar that, hey, this program's not all right. You can't go out there and kill stuff just because you're scared of it. Like Mm -hmm. that's that's not how the world works. Mm -hmm. That happened in in Western Australia and it worked. The government backed out. They abandoned their plans. Their trial ended. They pulled the pin. That exactly is what Lawrence is saying is that that, that we need need voices. We need outrage. We need more than, you know, a simple majority. Uh, We need global outrage i feel and that that's what we're trying to create through this film because i think when people see the ugly truth laid out to them for a hundred minutes um it's it's gonna it's gonna generate some feelings like that and then and then our job post its release is to is to convert those feelings into into action and that's really what we're trying to do because i think i think once both australia and the world see this program for what it is which and the footage in the film is 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 not an easy watch for, for parts of the film. It's a very very difficult watch. And then when you see just the lack of data behind that and and the, the abundance of data against it, um, there's going to be some strong feelings of it against this program. And if we get the international spotlight on these two states and these programs, I hope that can facilitate change. It might not be overnight, but. That, that I think is what is going to get the job done. And, and it did in Western Australia. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess the, one of the big questions is when's the film coming out? I know you said you were just filming this week. So the trailer was like, wow. I mean, wow, wow, wow. When I, when I first saw it and yeah, it had a lot of emotion, but uh, I mean, honestly, Angie and I were like, we can't wait to see it. Yeah, I, I, unfortunately, right now we don't have a straight answer to that. I, I, I'll give you, I'll give you the long answer though. Um, we are negotiating with streaming platforms. We need it to come out before the Queensland state election because we want to make this an election issue, which is in October this year. So uh, once we have an agreement with a streaming platform, 
uh, one of one of the conditions of that agreement will be a release date that is that is at least a month before the Queensland state election. So uh, originally, all these opportunities have actually come up because of coronavirus. So so streaming platforms who ordinarily might be very very difficult to get content on. Uh, uh, in desperate need of content because their productions are shut down and, and, and things like that. So some doors have been swung open for us, which is fantastic. Uh, it, it did change our distribution plan. Our, our distribution was plan was going to be a small cinema cinema release in Australia, and then and then look for for a, 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 an online uh, deal after that. We now have some great, great, great opportunities, uh, but no clear answer on a release date or where that will be yet. But it, but it will happen, and it will be out definitely uh, in enough time to make this an election issue in Queensland, which is a, an October election. But, uh, yeah, I mean, follow, follow our socials and you'll get a straight answer soon, I hope. Yeah, <laughs> it's not sure. a simple process. For sure, for sure, for sure. Well, in the documentary, do you guys explore or touch on some of the, the hopeful things or some of the good things that can be done and solutions, I suppose? We're very, very solutions driven. So, um, awesome. in, in in a hopeful sense, yes, we we t- we t- very very briefly touch on the WA call um, that uh, you know public outrage can do something, and, and we need your voice. Uh, that's kind of a, a call to action at the at the end of the film. But in terms of solutions, yes, a good chunk of our film is spent traveling around the world, looking how this issue is treated in other parts of the world and technology and products and services that that might be able to to help so we look at everything from drone drone surveillance which is very 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 promising uh uh it works basically in in good good water conditions you spot a shark you know it from the silhouette you can clear the beach if you because it can even through ai it can identify what species of shark it is and through the swimming pattern so they wow, know wow that's incredible yeah, so they know, for for example, for a grey nurse shark, um, they don't need to clear the beach because it's not an issue, uh, not an issue for swimmers, swimmers and surfers. But if they spot a great white, they would clear the beach. Uh, what you can also do in a, in a traditional sense, uh, in a traditional way, you would spot a fin, or a, a surfer would paddle in and say they saw something, and you close the beach, and you close it for an amount of time that you guess might be a good amount of time to close it for. And then you open it when you when you think it's safe. With drones, you can just monitor that shark, wait till it's moved off, open the beach. So it's actually more positive from a tourism point of view too, and that you don't need to go closing beaches for guesstimate amount of times. You can actually monitor the shark; it's moved off. Great, everyone back in the water, no problems. Uh, so we look at drone technology. We look at two options for barrier technology. Uh, one which is uh, one which is really good in calmer locations. One which is suitable for surf breaks and big swells. Uh, and then we also look at personal de- deterrence. So, so um, basically, those those electronic devices that you can wear that emit emit an electronic field that sharks don't like for when you're doing those high risk activities where no where no barrier or no drone can protect you. Um, you know diving, spearfishing, those kinds of, even surfing in a remote location, uh, those sorts of things. We also talk about how education plays into it, so on and so forth. So it's a big focus of film. I didn't just want to be, uh, I didn't just want to, it, it, could, it would have been a shorter, punchier film, no doubt, but I didn't just want to be a film that yells at the government and tell them they're doing the wrong thing to stop it. I really wanted to lay out a roadmap on on where this program should be, given that it's 2020 and it's not 1937 anymore. 
Uh, yeah, and it, yeah, and Andre did it. You know, um, the all great alternatives, and I think the most important thing to to recognize about these alternatives is that these can actually increase public safety. These these are actually things that can help people in the water, up to and including education. And 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 on the other and the other on the other side of it, these culling things they don't they 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 can't. They can't prove that they that they do anything to public safety. Um, we had a court case last year, um, my organization against the culling in the Great Barrier Reef, uh, and we brought that court case for first of all the what we've been talking about already with that shark culling is a detriment to that ecosystem. But our second and more strong argument has to do exactly with this: that shark culling has no impact on on bather safety. Uh, and we won that court case. We won in the uh, Administrative Appeals Tribunal um, in in Queensland here, and then they appealed, took that to the Federal Court of Australia, and we won again. Mm. Um, and the real mic drop moment of that court case was Queensland Fisheries' own expert witness was asked on the stand if the lethal component of the shark culling program was removed tomorrow, would it impact swimmer safety? And that expert said no. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's yeah. very impactful. Yeah, yeah. And now, Lawrence, with that program, congratulations. And that's why I love your organization. I mean, fighting, being the voice for the animals and, and speaking up for their conservation. And it's such great news that they won on so many levels. But where does it stand today? Well, currently, we are trying to consolidate that victory, as, as I like to say it. So the court orders didn't outlaw a uh the use of drumlines in the great barrier reef the 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 court order outlawed the killing of sharks and the and the lethal program and so what the court order said is the drumlines have to be checked more regularly um and large sharks were to be tagged and relocated just like the the smart drumline trials in new south wales now what happened was after queensland lost the court case they they kind of threw a tantrum, dragged all the drumlines out of the Great Barrier Reef in an effort to put pressure on the federal government to say, look, now there's nothing protecting people anymore and people are going to die. And they literally were waiting for shark interactions to happen on the Great Barrier Reef so that the federal government was then pressured to change the, change the Great Barrier Reef legislation so they could circumvent these court orders. Um, fortunately, to their credit, the federal government held firm. Um, they did not change the, the Great Barrier Reef legislation. Um, so the drumlines going back into the Great Barrier Reef, while it doesn't sound so great, it actually signifies the ending or the legality, the ending of the, the legality of killing sharks in the culling program. Um, now, as I say that, um, there's still massive issues. Sharks are still dying on drumlines in the Great Barrier Reef, and we are still um litigatively engaged can i say um to make sure that those that those administrative appeals tribunal orders are implemented appropriately um, and effectively so for both you you know outside of this film is there is there any other exciting conservation projects you have working or other films that our listeners may be interested in so for, for me, uh, we're totally focused on getting this film yeah. finished and getting it getting it on the platforms, getting it in front of the eyeballs it needs to get, and then we'll have an uh, basically an activism campaign off the back of it. Uh, from there, I've got some other things that I'm very passionate about that I want to go 
make a film about uh, immediately after this uh, with some of the people that, that have been in, in this film. Uh, so I've met some very special, very dedicated, very amazing people throughout this process. And uh, it's, it's, been, it's been a very humbling process to see, um, like, um, yes, we're coming in and making a film about it, but these people dedicate their life to this stuff day in, day out. It's, it's, um, yeah, I have so much, so much respect and so much, I guess, uh, endearment for these people that have agreed to be in the film and the work that they do. So, um, yeah, I, I, I now have a lot of ideas, uh, but yeah, I, I have some projects that I want to move on to straight, straight after this. Uh, but really the main focus is getting it getting it finished to a high level, uh, get it out on a platform that it gets it in front of millions and millions and millions of eyeballs in, in, around the world uh, and then create some some change off the back of it. Uh, yeah, so, so, so that's sort of my plan for now. Lawrence, what do you guys got going on? Uh, yeah, so so culling is a, is a big part of what we do, the, working on these two programs. Um, but protecting sharks and other marine life um, as an extension, we also do a lot of work with fisheries. So fisheries uh, need to be accredited in this country before, before they continue, make sure that they're managed properly, and that gives us an opportunity to, su to submit our, our, suggest our suggestions and recommendations on bycatch, things like managing those fisheries appropriately. Um, we do a lot of work with um, threatened and endangered species in Australia, so we, so we nominate species to be federally protected. Um, and, and, and lastly, we do, we do a lot of work internationally with uh, international conservation instruments, things like um, uh, CITES, the trade of endangered species, as well as CMS, which is migratory species. So uh, getting animals listed on those instruments, is, is, and for me, sharks specifically, um, so that there's some international cooperation as far as their trade and their conservation um, when an animal is migratory and lives in multiple jurisdictions. And so that's mainly what I work on. Yeah, just for our listeners outside of Australia, because, you know, Angie and I were really focused on it earlier in the year and uh, monitoring the fire situation there. And then obviously with COVID-19 has thrown the entire planet on its head. Just, you know, how are things going uh, in recovery down there? And especially with like something we didn't hear about was like aquatic species. I know like streams and things were affected. So I don't know if uh, either of you like Lawrence, if you had something on that. Yeah, well, as I'm sure the, the world knew by now, knows by now is that the fires were absolutely devastating this last um, austral summer. Um, my, my organization, not me specifically, but works a lot with native wildlife, um, going down to the fire-affected areas, uh, putting in water stations, feeding, doing rescues, bringing animals to, to shelters. All, this, all the native animal shelters in those, those areas are, are, are absolutely overflowing, but there, there was a big um, global financial support for all of that. So we've been very, very lucky to have access to funding that we, and then that we could disseminate to some of those, to some of those hardest hit areas. Um, so yeah, it, it was bad, but I think hopefully looking, at it, looking back on it optimistically, it, 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 give, it gives, we, we know what we can do, uh, where our shortfalls were, and how we can better prepare for those in the future. Um, as we know, as, 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 as things like bushfires and extreme weather mm. events are going to get more and more frequent and more and more yeah. extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. well, yeah, well, that leads me into one of my last questions is there obviously is a lot going on as far as wildlife and conservation and the human wildlife conflicts and 
As far as shark calling goes, and first and foremost, when Envoy comes out, Chris and I will do our part in helping promote that and anything you need from us, we are totally on deck. Uh, But do either of you have advice for our listeners on what they can do to help you? We're all sitting at home on our couch right now. Uh, We've all watched most of the documentaries out there waiting for new good ones. But what else could we do from our couch or for people that are more local in uh, in Queensland or New South Wales? Any advice on, on what they can do to help? Um, yeah, we uh, Humane Society International, uh, along with our partners, the Australian Marine Conservation Society, which is another organization involved in the film, uh, we have a we have a group of of everyday folks around the world, um, mostly in Australia, but around the world that have signed up to a thing called Shark Champions uh, at SharkChampions.com.au, or, or I'm sorry, SharkChampions.org.au. Um, and and that, that really gives you an update on what's been happening, gives you access to all our petitions, um, helps, helps you get involved, and it's something you can really do right now. I know a lot of people sitting at home right now will, will kind of roll their eyes when, when I suggest signing a petition, but it actually does work. It, it's, it's politics in action um, to show our elected officials, the kind of support or opposition to certain things is a really, really effective tool. Um, And that's definitely something anyone around the world sitting at home can help us with right now. Um, And I really appreciate it if people would just go check that out. Yeah, we'll add it to our show notes for sure. And, and Andre, do you have anything? For me, I would there's two lines in our trailer that really stand out to me. One is from Lawrence, which is that uh, something something to the effect of once people see what's happening, they should be outraged. And that, that's what our film is about. And even the trailer gives you a sense for that. So uh, for, for me, I would say check out the trailer. Lawrence's line is very powerful. And then um, one Oliphant at the end, the closing line of the trailer is, is your voice matters. And I love that line because... That is, that's something you can do from home. It doesn't matter if you've got lockdown or, or shelter in place orders, anything like that going on. It doesn't matter if you're not in Australia. We won't be able to travel internationally for quite a while, but your voice does matter. And on social media, you can make an impact. And that's by either impacting, uh, sorry, interacting with, with our posts and, and HSI's posts and AMCS's posts uh, positively uh, or you know by going and and letting politicians know or, or by letting our tourism page know for example so so the Queensland and New South Wales tourism pages love to post these beautiful images of of, um, of our beautiful wildlife it, it, you know it depends obviously how activist you want to get but but going and politely making a point on a on, on posts like that to say hey isn't this image a bit contradictory when you when you cull sharks in your waters or, or, or something like that you know it depends how far you want to go with it that's a personal choice but all i can say is that that final line of the trailer is so powerful to me it's why it is the final line of the trailer and and your voice does matter and, and it doesn't matter if it's online or if it's here or where it is uh, use it because there's there's some ripples starting on this they're, they're becoming waves and they're just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger the more voices we have no, that's amazing. I I got to applaud you. You know, you were talking earlier about all the wonderful people you met and just, you know, hearing you two, what we call conservation heroes on our podcast, because, you know, not only are you spotlighting a major issue in conservation, but, you know, 
you're making such a difference that you don't even realize it. So thank you both so much, you know, Andre and Lawrence, filmmakers from Envoy Cole. We will definitely be monitoring it. And the second we hear that it's coming out, we will, we will be sure to pass that on to our listeners. Yes, guys, thank you so much for taking your time. It was such a pleasure to meet you and to share with us this, this horrific practice. And uh, it really does need to end. And although it's not in our waters in the U.S. anymore, uh, it shouldn't be anywhere. Sharks travel all around the world, and they've been here way longer than us. Uh, so we need to help conserve them in every way possible. And your film is doing that, and we look forward to watching it. And maybe having you back on again in the future as you guys keep up these amazing endeavors. Yeah, we'd love to come back maybe when, when it's out uh, or, or something like that for a chat and talk about the change that hopefully we create. But uh, thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Love and, your show. Really okay, good chat. Good. And thank if you, you do you ever release it in like a small intimate theater in, um, in Melbourne or Sydney or something, and you need us to come be there, part of the red carpet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am ready to travel. Let me tell you, uh, I've, been uh, home, I've been home for eight weeks with uh, two little kids. So, oh my goodness. You let me, I'll, I'll, I'll even put, I'll even put like real clothes on to come there. Not just my yoga pants. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, awesome. thank you. Thank you. Or, yes, or when, you. if ever you're in the States, let us know. We would love yeah. to host you. And yeah. uh, yes, just thank you so much. It's such a, it's such a, a great time meeting you. Thanks thank you very both. much, Angie and Chris. Really appreciate the opportunity. <laughs>